everyone. Welcome back to Built to Win. I'm your host, Victoria Erdley, and I'm here today with Madeline Melissa, a senior fellow here at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Here she focuses on election and initiative integrity, but prior to joining FGA, she was a director of government relations at Consolidated Communications, and previously she served as chief counsel to Governor Paul LePage of Maine. She started her career in private practice, and as a civil litigator, she tried jury trials, bench trials, and appeals, including successfully before Maine's Supreme Court. Madeline, you have a fantastic background, and thank you for joining the show today. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me as your guest today. I'm excited to talk election integrity reform. So am I. Very excited. And let's jump right in. So today we're going to talk about H.R. 1. It's an act that's already been passed by the House, and it's now on to the Senate with the companion bill, S1. Madeline, you've worked in a state, and there are really some major proposed provisions in H.R. 1 and S1 that are pushing to federalize elections. So can you tell me and our listeners about some of those? Absolutely. Well, let me just start by saying secure and fair elections are necessary to preserving the American way of life. We both know this. All of your listeners know this. Mm -hmm. America stands for the idea that anyone can create their own success and shape their future. But that starts with them being able to cast a ballot that counts. So in the wake of the 2020 election and everything that we dealt with last year, states have been moving to restore election integrity and voter confidence through local policy changes. So 43 states have actually already introduced bills that impact election laws. That's great. And as we know, last year, states rushed to make a lot of changes to the voting process during the pandemic without safeguards to protect ballot integrity. Unfortunately, Congressional Democrats have decided that the solution is to make pandemic-style election changes and, of course, all the problems that they caused permanent and both federally mandated. So as you referenced, H.R. 1, which is now S1 because it's in the Senate, Mm -hmm. it's an 800-page Democratic Party bill that would allow the federal government to dictate how states must run their elections. And the changes in this bill are incredibly vast, they are far-reaching, and they would fundamentally change how our country handles elections. And that is not in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are kind of pitching it almost as a positive, reading off just the base description of the bill right at the very top. It says it wants to expand Americans' access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, strengthen ethics rules for public servants, and implement other anti-corruption measures for the purpose of fortifying our democracy. Then it has a comma and says for other purposes, which is very vague, but also leaves it up to a ton of things that could be in this bill. And, And they're pitching it as, it sounds great, right? Expanding access to Americans to reduce corruption. Both of those sound really wonderful. What's in this bill that would kind of make it easy to vote, but also easy to cheat in a way? Yes, that's entirely correct. And the messaging of this bill makes it sound very enticing. And the title, For the People, makes it sound enticing too. But it's anything but for the people. Mm -hmm. So let me just take a step back here. Because as your audience knows from experience voting, we run elections in America state by state, right? Yep. State and local rules, they're responsive to the voters of each state. And in fact, the U.S. Constitution, our founders limited the role of Congress in conducting elections, and they delegated it specifically to the states, right? Because states are closest to the people. 
the people who elected them. Yes. And of course, to the process. So S1, what it is, is a federal power grab. It, what it would do is strip states of their authority to decide how to manage, how to control, and then how to administer their elections. And in the process, it will eliminate safeguards, increase opportunities for fraud, and further erode voter confidence, which we know right now is at an all-time low. So just at a very high level, some of the things that this bill would do is mandate that states adopt automatic voter registration, universal mail-in ballots, mandate that states have same-day voter registration, and then at the same time require states to allow ballot harvesting and strip states of their ability to do things that check voter identity or even clean up their voter rolls. So like you said, Victoria, there are a lot of things that the bill has, you know, messages that sound really enticing, but the devil, as we know, is in the details. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what this bill would not do. So just to give your listeners an idea, as you mentioned, procedurally what's happened with the bill, it was H.R. 1. It passed out of the House. Not a single Republican supported it. Wow. It's now in the Senate. And in order to advance, it needs 60 votes. And since we know the Senate is split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats, the lack of the GOP support means that the Democrats would have to unilaterally eliminate the filibuster. So it remains to be seen. That's where it's at right now. But again, this bill is not for the people. It's anything but for the people. Madeline, this past month, Senator James Lankford, a Republican who represents Oklahoma, said H.R. 1 will make it easy to vote and easy to cheat. Mm -hmm. So what's in the proposed legislation specifically that would make it easy to vote and easy to cheat? I believe we're going for easy to vote and hard to cheat, correct? Yes, that's exactly correct. So look, voters need confidence restored in the election process not a federal mandate for a repeat of the problems that we saw in 2020. For sure. And Senator Langford is right. The bill would make it easy for anyone to vote, eligible or not, and for bad actors to cheat. So I'll highlight for you a few of the worst provisions of this 800-page bill. First, the bill would force states to use same-day voter registration. Why is that a problem? Okay, so leaving state officials no time to verify that people are who they say they are on election day, poll precincts are not equipped to handle the volume of processing and overwhelming poll workers. It's just it's ripe for problems because they're not going to be able to cross check names. Are you who you say you are? And to dovetail on that, the bill also would require and result in people voting who aren't citizens or otherwise ineligible to vote because it the bill takes away from states the ability to verify that that voter standing in front of you is who they say they are. In addition to that, it also compels automatic voter registration for everyone. And the bill specifically uses the term eligible individuals, not citizens. So that encompasses people who are not eligible to vote, who are not citizens. And even more crazy is the fact that it includes registering automatically 16 and 17-year-olds. Oh, wow. So that means without an ID, right, to verify their age, Mm -hmm. and without Mm -hmm. a penalty for voting underage, they might be able to just go right ahead and vote in the next election. So those are all very problematic in terms of verifying that the person standing in front of you is eligible to vote in this election as a citizen, as an 18-year-old, and in the actual proper precinct that they're voting in. 
So my younger brother, before he went off to college, he would go into the precinct, still showed voter ID. He, we, we grew up in Florida, so we have some pretty strong election reforms there and some a lot of election integrity uh, whenever it comes to walking into your polling place. However, I'm just going back and thinking, wow, 16, 17-year-olds being able to vote. I didn't know what I was doing when I was 16 and 17, and man, my life has changed since then. But from what you're saying and from my understanding, with same-day voter registration, I'm a 17-year-old kid. I walk in, I register to vote, and then I go on the computer, insert my ballot, walk out. Could I go to the next polling location and do the same exact thing without any verification and they would potentially count that later? Or is that not exactly how it works? Well, that's a great question, but I think the answer to that is quite possibly yes. Because what this bill is doing is removing all of those protections other than somebody signing, yes, I am who I say I am and I'm eligible. But there is no person sitting on the other side of the table, right? That poll worker who is now trying to register, you know, tons of people same day, they have no other way of checking, right? And those poll workers are mainly volunteers as well. That's entirely correct. And so the answer is there needs to be an easy way for those poll workers to know that you are indeed not your 17-year-old brother going from poll to poll to vote mm-hmm. and being able to verify, yes, you are who you say you are, you are a citizen, you are eligible, and you are 18. We have to have those checks in place because otherwise that, that example that you just used, that could happen under this bill. And in addition to that, the bill does some really fundamentally terrible things such as legalizing ballot harvesting. And so for those of you know the audience that might not know what that is, Ballot harvesting is a term that's used to describe a practice where third parties, so somebody who's not a family member or caregiver, third parties, often political operatives, gather and return absentee ballots. So that practice is banned in a lot of states, rightfully so, because it has caused huge security issues. But if this legislation passes, ballot harvesting is going to be legal everywhere. And just think about this. Think about the, the security issues that go along with the with giving your ballot to somebody who is politically motivated, a political operative, grabbing tons of ballots, driving up and down streets to, to mm. nursing homes, to all of these various areas, and then taking those votes, that chain of custody, to whatever, you know, to the precinct. I mean, so you just, you lose control of putting your ballot in the slot at the voting booth. For sure. Yeah, it's a really big problem. So- The bill also, just to name a few other provisions that I think are really problematic, it would force states to permanently expand mail-in voting. And we all know what happened in this last election where states like, for example, Michigan sent every single voter an absentee ballot, all 7.7 million. So think about all of those people who then, you know, they get a mail-in ballot. They're incredibly confused. Like, do I have to do this? Can I go in? We have something called election day in this country for a reason. All right. That should be an exception to the rule, not mass mail on ballots, because as we know, anybody who has experienced the post office. Um, <laughs> not fun. Not, not a good day fun. to go to the post office. Exactly. So absentee ballots, they would be able to be requested for any reason, no reason at all, without ID verification and cast again without any sort of a witness. So just think about that. You know, you and I both know how easy it is to cheat the system under that set of rules. And the most important part is states will be powerless to stop it. So a few other things I want to touch on. 
The bill makes it nearly impossible for states to conduct meaningful voter roll list checks. So we all know what that means, right? Taking people who have passed away off the voting rolls. That means- Which is important. Super important, right? We all know dead people shouldn't be voting. And in addition, it, it means, you know, people move. People move all, all the time. So it makes it incredibly impossible and difficult for states to conduct those very important voter roll checks. It also compels states and every precinct to provide ballot drop boxes. This is a practice that became very popular during the pandemic and provides little to no protection against ballot stealing or tampering or stuffing those ballot boxes. If there's going to be a ballot box, it needs to be securely monitored. We know voting often takes place in government buildings. There can be a camera watching this. I mean, that's incredibly important to have a drop box that actually has a level of security. Yes, yes. And just one other thing I want to point out about the provisions of the bill, there's also a section regarding donor privacy. And the provisions really, they trample the First Amendment, okay? That's what it's doing. Because it's limiting free speech and imposing these, I'm going to call them vague standards, but basically what it would do in effect is any nonprofit that advocates on a legislative issue would then be required to disclose the name of their donors. So all in all, it's doing everything during the pandemic that was bad and then adding more bad stuff on top of it and, and fundamentally transforming elections the way that we know them. So I'd like to touch a little bit further about the donor provisions, if you don't mind. So groups like ours, Foundation for Government Accountability, there are many groups across the country just like ours. You're saying that we would have to disclose our donors. And why is that a bad thing? I mean, I think transparency across the board is, is usually a good bet. However, why currently, why do we not have to disclose our donors? Why do groups like ours not have to disclose their donors to the government? Well, let me start by saying, to circle back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation, the bill is labeling ending big money in politics, okay? But the sponsors failed to advertise that what this would effectively do is require nonprofits to disclose the name of their donors. And what that means is every charitable donation that you make would be open to public review, cancellation, and scrutiny. There is something sacred about donor privacy when it comes to nonprofits, right? I mean, people should be able to donate what they want to donate to. They should have no fear of repercussions of their neighbors, of their bosses, of their coworkers looking up who they're donating to, because that is a free speech issue in this country, being able to, to exercise that decision. And that's left up to each American, how to mm -hmm. donate, when to donate, who to donate to. And frankly, you know, a majority of voters are opposed to revealing the uh, identities of those who give to nonprofits for those very reasons. It's think about the chilling effect that would have for the nonprofits too, right? I mean, if all of a sudden you have to disclose everybody, I think people would think twice about who they donate to if they're exactly. under scrutiny. I mean, that is a huge problem. That also means, just, just think about this to just take it out a step further. Imagine the political operatives who could have access to your giving history and target you based on who you support or don't support. And that has led, you know, during inadvertent leaks and, and nonprofit donor lists to things such as, as violence against people. Charitable donations, you should be able to give who you want, you know, who you want to give to, the amounts you want to give to, and the federal government should not be taking that cloak off and allowing everybody to see. And you're right. It is for sure, a, in a way, a free speech issue because money talks and you in many ways can 
show who you support just by giving. I know I do that with Samaritan's Purse, my yearly Operation Christmas Child Box. My husband and I do it every year. It's a fun way for us to give to someone else and to a charitable organization at Christmas time. For example, though, I think you mentioned, would groups like those, almost completely charitable organizations, if they don't lobby or they don't specifically have a stake in a political legislation game, would they also have to disclose their donors? Who would this all apply to? Does it apply to churches? For our listeners, exactly who qualifies underneath the donor privacy provisions? Is it only groups that have some sort of political advocacy portion within their stance or their mission statement? That's a very good question. And I'll say first, you are like every American. You pick the charity you want to give to and the amount you want to give, and that is a fundamental right to be able to do that. And to answer your question, the answer is quite likely yes, that they would have to disclose. And here's the reason why. If a nonprofit weighs in on any sort of legislative issue, the definition of political activity under this bill is so broad. Mm. Any Mm -hmm. type of weighing in on a legislative issue could qualify as a political activity because it's so vague. And again, we don't know how this is going to play out Mm -hmm. because it has not yet been tested. But there is a strong possibility that, yes, they would have to disclose all of their donors. And again, one of the most important parts of this is just think about the chilling effect on donations if your information is subject to public view. I mean, charities across this country should be incredibly concerned about this. And you're right. That's a way that it could affect an everyday American citizen. Let's say you gave $5 to a Facebook ad for someone's birthday and you wanted to donate to that nonprofit because you believed in what they did. And then that also goes all the way up to multi-million dollar donations and someone who really truly believes in what that organization is doing. For someone who isn't as attuned to politics, who isn't as in the thick of it as you and I are every single day, how does this bill overall affect the everyday citizen? What would this look like the next election cycle? Well, I I think the most important takeaway from our discussion today is this. If S1 passes, when you go to vote in your next election, you will not know whether or not your vote has counted. You and every other American should have confidence, okay, in the fairness and the security of the election process. But if D.C. takes over elections, these questionable and abuse-prone election rules that we have seen in this past election cycle will now be federally required, and states will be powerless to protect your vote. So a federal decree from the, from the, uh, the government is not the answer to restoring election integrity. The answer really, it lies at the local level, at state reforms that ensure every American, no matter where they live in the country or what their income level is, that their voice is heard and their ballot is counted. So Madeline, before we wrap up here in just a few moments, are there any states who are, in a way, trying to preempt some of those proposed items in this legislation? You know, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. So what states are doing is they've passed resolutions that oppose the federalization of elections. I've seen so far eight states this session that have passed resolutions, including states like Michigan, Ohio, Arizona. And these states recognize 
It is their legislative bodies who are equipped to solve the problems, not the federal government. You're right. They know their state. They know their voters. They know their constituents. Voting day looks different in all the different states, but they're there to protect the voters who walk into that polling place that they know and they have the confidence that their vote counted that day and it went directly for the person. They checked off that little box and it went, your vote went for one for Biden, one for Donald Trump, whoever it is that you voted for in the last election cycle, whoever it is you're planning on voting for in the next election cycle, you want to be sure that when you walk in that your vote counts. And I believe that states who are preempting this bill for sure are actively trying to retain their rights as state legislatures and just really, truly protecting voters all around and protecting their their vote when they walk into the ballot box. Yep, that's exactly correct. And I think, you know, throughout the entire history of this country, it is states that has, have run elections. It is states that set these procedures. And that is what our Constitution provides. And that is what the Supreme Court has weighed in on. It is the states that are equipped to do this. This is simply a power grab by Washington, D.C. And again, to circle back to your points and to my point earlier, your vote needs to count. Every single person's vote, no matter who they vote for, what they vote for, they need to have the confidence when they walk away from that ballot box that their vote counted just as much as their neighbor or any other elected official. For sure. Well, thank you, Madeline, for joining us today. It was really a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Victoria. This has been a great conversation on a very important issue facing our country. And for all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in once again to Built to Win. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org and tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office.